0: You're listening to a sermon from Plus Life, a church that exists to see lives changed by the gospel of Jesus Christ. Our prayer is that you will be stirred in your heart and renewed in your mind as you hear the preaching of God's Word today. Witnesses, Part 3. Part 3. This is the last part to this portion of our study in the Gospel of John. Just want to first and foremost thank uh, Elder Joel for preaching last week. It gave us, uh, my family and I, an opportunity to just take a little break, a little breather uh, for the summer. Um, But in addition to that, so again, just thankful for for that, uh, for Elder Joel and, and preaching last week. And it was a great, powerful word. Hopefully you got to listen to that as well. In addition to that, as Sister Precious mentioned during the announcements, and some of you maybe were not here for that, uh, on July 23rd, we are going to have a, a workshop here at the church on evangelism, on evangelism. Now, the purpose for this workshop is because uh, as Summer Jam Picnic is on the way, and hopefully you're getting excited for that, you should have gotten some uh, emails about that this past week, uh, we're, we're trying to make an initiative or, or, uh, or making it, intentional of our church to, uh, to pursue evangelism during that summer jam picnic. We want to be very intentional in reaching out to our visitors, to our friends and families who we invite to that picnic. And so what we are doing with that workshop is training us in the biblical way of doing evangelism, maybe dealing with some of our fears, maybe um, doing uh, a little bit of, of or sort of role-playing in terms of h- how to approach evangelism in our modern day and in, our, in, our, in, our, in, in this day and age. So please, 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 again, there's going to be a sign-up after church, we want to sort of get numbers of how many people are interested in that workshop so sign up for that if if you're interested in in not just sharing the gospel at the summer jam picnic but you're interested in being able to share the gospel to your unbelieving co-workers or your classmates or your family and friends then please sign up for that if you've ever had any questions on how to properly share the gospel or what to say or even how to overcome those fears when when it comes to evangelism come out for that workshop now with that said, we are going to go into the last chapter or the last passage in, in, in John chapter 5, continuing our study in the Gospel of John. So far, we've, as we've gone through these past few weeks, we've been looking at the so called expert witnesses that Jesus brings forward in order to validate his claims as the Son of God. If you recall at the beginning of this chapter, Jesus performs one of his greatest miracles by healing a paralytic man at the pool of Bethesda. Now, Everything would have been fine except he healed this man on the Sabbath. And the religious leaders of the day, the Pharisees, thought this was a big mistake. That this was a big no-no to them. And in their interpretation of the law, they accused Jesus of breaking one of the Sabbath laws. One of the Sabbath rules that they had. In response to this, Jesus makes one of his boldest claims in his entire ministry. And that is, he is the son of god now this was an affront to the religious leaders because they understood that jesus claiming to be the son of god meant that he was claiming to be equal to god in nature in power and in authority and as we saw this wasn't some misunderstanding on the part of the religious leaders throughout this chapter jesus has been explicitly declaring that he is in fact equal with god in those things now, I was, as a result, the religious leaders wanted to kill Jesus. If you have your Bible still open, look at John 5:18. It says, "This was why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him, because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own Father, making him himself equal with God. Keep that sentiment in mind because as we'll see in a couple of chapters from now, these religious leaders never stop wanting to kill Jesus because of these claims. In fact, it's the exact reason why Jesus is brought before the Sanhedrin and has this mock trial right before he's crucified and he's accused of claiming to be the son of God, equal with God. So if ever you speak with your Muslim friends or someone who says that Jesus never claimed to be God, you can point them to John chapter five, among other passages. Now, in this discourse between Jesus and these religious leaders, Jesus recognizes that that according to the law, the law of Moses, in order to, in order for a claim or an accusation to be valid. One must provide two or three witnesses to testify on their behalf, on your behalf. It is for this purpose that Jesus calls to the stand, so to speak, three expert witnesses. The first we talked about was John the Baptist, considered the last prophet of the Old Testament, the one who came with the spirit of Elijah, crying in the wilderness, prepare ye the way of the Lord. Then Jesus brings forth his second expert witness, which was God the Father himself. And he points to the entirety of the Old Testament for the Father's testimony. Describing how from all the way back from in creation in Genesis, the Father has been testifying of the Son's works and what he would accomplish. The miracles that Jesus would perform. Even the very life that he would live. The Father records it all in his testimony, the Old Testament. Now... As we conclude chapter 5, Jesus goes on to his final witness in his effort to validate his claims as the Son of God. And the final witness is none other than the Word of God, specifically the writings of Moses. The very thing that these Pharisees, these religious leaders valued the most in their faith. So let's get right into our passage. Everyone say, jump for me. Let's jump down to verse 45. It says, Do not think that I will accuse you to the Father. Jesus says, I'm not accusing you to the Father even though you're accusing me. And the reason for this is because there is one who accuses you, Moses, on whom you have set your hope. The same guy who who founded your Jewish faith, your, your Jewish religion, he's accusing you. Why? Because in verse 46, Jesus says, For if you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote of me. Jesus is saying that Moses himself, the the person who represents the law, the first five books of the Old Testament, the founder of the Jewish faith, he himself condemns these religious leaders because they did not believe what Moses wrote concerning Jesus. And what did Moses write about Jesus? Well, the writer of Hebrews puts it this way. He says, the law, referring to, again, the first five books of the the Bible, the Pentateuch, that's the law. He says, the writer of Hebrews says, the law itself was but a shadow of the good things to come and not their realities. That's Hebrews chapter 10 verse 1. All the the rituals, all the sacrifices, the cleansing rites, the, the priestly order, even the stories of the patriarchs were all a foreshadow of the Messiah, of what Christ would accomplish in his earthly ministry. Let's just look at some examples here. You've heard of the Passover lamb. That's Jesus, the Lamb of God who would be slain for the sins of the world. You've heard about the high priest in the tabernacle. That's a shadow of our our high priest, Jesus. Uh, You've heard the story about the manna from, from heaven falling in the wilderness. That's Jesus, a shadow of Jesus being the bread of life. You've heard about the story of the snake being lifted up in the wilderness uh, and, and, and those who looked on it would be healed. That's Jesus defeating the serpent, Satan, on the cross for our healing. Even the story of, of, of the rock that Moses hits, uh, who, that he strikes in the wilderness to bring forth water for the people in the wilderness. That was a shadow of Jesus, our cornerstone, being struck so that we might have the waters of life Moses himself, he prophesied about the coming Messiah as well. In Deuteronomy chapter 18, verse 15, look at this, or listen to this. Moses says, the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your brothers. It is to him you shall listen just as you desired of the Lord your God at Horeb on the day of assembly when you said, let me not hear again the voice of the Lord my God or see this great fire anymore lest I die. And the Lord said to me, they are right in what they have spoken. I will raise up for them a prophet like you From among their brothers, and I will put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak to them all that I command him, and whoever will not listen to my words, that he will that he shall speak in my name, I myself will require it of him. Moses himself prophesied about the coming Messiah, about Jesus Christ. All throughout the Pentateuch, the first five books, the, the books so-called written by Moses, the laws of Moses, all of it was a shadow of what Jesus would accomplish and what he would do and what he would be in his earthly ministry. It's all about Jesus. This is why we cannot uh, disregard the Old Testament, why we can't say that it's no longer important or no longer valid or irrelevant to these, in these days. The Old Testament is relevant because Jesus is relevant. The Old Testament reveals Christ. The weight of our sin and the necessity of Christ's earthly ministry and his atoning sacrifice is made all the more tangible, all the more clear by the writings of Moses and the Old Testament. And if, and if we discard them, if we, did, if we get rid of the Old Testament and we say it's no longer important, we're no better than the Pharisees who read them but yet did not believe them. Back in our passage, verse 47, how Jesus ends this whole chapter. He says to the Pharisees, but if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? The Pharisees read the word, they, they, they memorized it, they, they followed its commands legalistically, yet they did not believe it. Not when it concerned Jesus or, and who he, was in, who he was to be in their life. Now, this touches on such a crucial topic in the Christian walk and what many believers seem to stumble over in our day and age. And that is simply how much weight does the Word of God have over your life? How much weight does the Word of God have over your life? Does it define your identity? Does it set the boundaries of your morality, of what you determine, what is good and evil, what is true and false? Does it direct your steps? Is it the ruler in which you measure what is true and false? Because the reality is, many Christians today are just like the Pharisees. They've read the Bible, but do not believe the Bible. Or at the very least, they do not take the word of God as the highest authority over their faith and practice, over the principles of life and morality, and it only comes second the Bible becomes second fiddle, so to speak, to the voices of the world, the, the philosophies, the ideologies, the, the governments, the trends, the news networks, the, the influencers, the social movements of the world. And as a result, you have wishy-washy Christians supporting and siding with every trend and every worldly opinion popularized by sinful, godless heathens. An example of this, literally just a few weeks ago when Roe v. Wade got overturned in America eliminating the delusional right to murder the unborn you had Christians echoing the outcry of women who want the right to kill their children. Why? Because of women's rights? Because it's what all the celebrities are tweeting about? Because it's what the world says you should be upset about? Certainly not because the Bible says that you shouldn't murder or that every human life, whether inside the womb or outside the womb, is an image bearer of God or that the killing of children is one of the most horrific and sinful crimes only committed by sinful, godless pagans in the Bible. Yet we have Christians defending, echoing the cries of the godless world. Listen, as a believer... Even if you know what the Bible says on abortion or what the Bible says on gender identity or homosexuality or money or the origins of man or anything else, it will not matter unless you believe the word of God is true. Unless the word of God dictates your, your, your thoughts, your decisions, your morality, your reasoning. Unless the word of God is the highest authority in your life, you will always question its authority with whatever ideology, whatever opinion that has taken its place. Let me put it this way, right? If you read the Bible, you study it, you meditate on the word of God, but are not grieved by sin, are not compelled towards obedience and holiness, are not convinced in your heart that you should make Jesus the Lord of your life, it's probably because you do not believe the word of God. It's probably because you doubt its relevance for your life. It's probably because you value the words and opinions of others more highly than the word of God. And this is the very thing that Jesus calls these religious leaders out on in our passage. As we'll see there were reasons as to why these Pharisees did not hold the word of God as their highest authority. And unfortunately, I feel that we too can fall into those same sets of uh, that same mindset, the same attitudes towards the word of God. Even we as believers must be careful that we do not stumble into the pitfalls of the Pharisees. So Church, my hope for us this morning is that we would examine these attitudes, these mentalities that these Pharisees had, that Jesus called them out on, so that, the, so that we would not fall into the same judgment as them, the same judgment as these Pharisees, ever reading and hearing the word, but never believing the word. Beloved, my hope this morning is that if you find yourself in relating to these Pharisees, this, this, this morning, these religious unbelievers, when it comes to the word of God, that you would repent, that you would place the word of God as the highest authority over your life, that you would truly make Christ Lord over your life. Because again, as Jesus said to these Pharisees, if you do not believe the word, how can you believe in Christ? So let's take a look at these pitfalls that these Pharisees struggled with so that, that we can learn how to avoid them. We can learn what to avoid ourselves. Let's jump into our passage again. Let's say jump again. Double jump, that's great. You know. Picking up where we left off from the previous sermon, verse 39. You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. As mentioned before, Jesus is giving these Pharisees credit. They were doing the right thing by turning the scripture, the Old Testament, to find what it takes to get right with God, what it takes to have eternal life. And the reason what's that that's the right thing to do is because, as Jesus says, it is they that bear witness about me. But here's Jesus' first charge against these religious leaders it says in verse 40, Yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. The religious leaders read scripture, they studied it, they memorized it, but the moment that it pointed to Jesus, they abandoned it. The moment that they called them to repent, that they, could, that, they, that they couldn't save themselves, that their only hope is in God's promised Messiah, they refused to believe it. I mean, hindsight is twenty twenty, right? right? Like, like we mentioned earlier, as believers on the other side of the cross, we can look back and see how everything in the Old Testament, the laws and the prophets, was a shadow of what Christ would come to accomplish and be. And I believe the Pharisees could have done the same thing, even more from their, even from their vantage point in history. They could, they could have looked back into the Old Testament and see how God was going to send his son, how, how, how he was going to be born of a virgin, how, how he would live a sinless life, and, and that he would die for the sins of mankind. Again, all the animal sacrifice, all the prophecies, all of that was a shadow of what Jesus would do. So then why did Jesus say that they refused to come to him? Simply put, because Jesus didn't fit what they wanted the Messiah to do. Their expectation of the Messiah was a conquering king. Someone who would liberate them from Rome. Not someone who was going to die on the cross for their sins. Again, they were Pharisees. It's like, what sins, right? We're we're doing all the right things. In the context of our passage, they were expecting someone who followed their Sabbath laws who was just as legalistic as they were, who was an ordinary man just like them. But Jesus didn't meet their expectations. He, he didn't give in to their cultural standards. He claimed to be the son of God, God himself, equal with God in nature, in power and authority. And the Pharisees rejected this. So instead of finding life in Christ, they refused Christ and turn to their dead works, their own efforts to attain life, justification. See, one of the reasons why we often reject the word and what it says is when we don't like what it says. When it says homosexuality is a sin. When when it says that we are all sinners and that we cannot on our own work for our salvation. When it says that we are to lay down our rights and put others' rights before us. The reason why we often reject the word of God and side with the word of man, the word of the world, is simply because we don't like what the word of God says. We make excuses. We play ignorant. Oh, I didn't know the Bible said this. We avoid reading the section of the Bible that talks about those topics. Or we simply don't read it at all. You know, what I've found in my own life, in my own walk with God, is that I am less likely to turn to the word of God when I know that what I'm doing and the way I'm thinking contradicts the word of God. When I know that the way I'm thinking or what I'm doing or how I'm living goes against what the Bible says, I run from it. Because it is a two-edged sword that, that, that would utterly destroy me and my convictions and correct me and rebuke me and discipline me when I am in the wrong Hebrews chapter 4 verse 12, right? That's what it says. For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And in my flesh, I would rather turn, I would rather run to something that's easy, that's comforting, something that affirms my perspective, that coddles my flesh and approves of my sin, I end up seeking a satisfaction and life and fulfillment in something outside of the word of Christ. And outside of Christ himself. And as a result, the word of God loses its authority over my life. Can anyone else relate to this? What ends up happening is I, as, as we flee from Christ and the word that proclaims them is that we search for life and satisfaction elsewhere and and we end up becoming even more burdened with guilt, digging a deeper hole into sin, further consumed with the lies and wrongful emotions that we bear, more thirsty for what truly satisfies like drinking ocean water. Here's the remedy. Come to God for life and not the world. Come to God for life and not the world. Only God can truly satisfy the weary soul burdened by sin, weighted weighted down by the lies of this world. The Bible says that God satisfies the longing soul and the hungry soul. He fills with good things. The Bible says that if you draw near to God, he will draw near to you. And that he is near to the brokenhearted and saves the crushed in spirit. The Bible says that God is, is good and forgiving, abounding in steadfast love to all who call upon him and that if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That's what the Bible says. But you would not know that unless you came to God through it, through the word, for life, for direction, for hope, for dissatisfaction, for satisfaction in life. The word of God contains life. Psalm chapter 1, verse 1 to 3 says, Blessed is a man who walks in the counsel, blessed is a man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seats of scoffers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. He is like a stream planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in the season, and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. That is a promise of blessing when we spend time in God's word. Listen, it's true that when, we, when you come to the word of God in your sinfulness, in your flesh, there will be things that are often convicting, rebuking, even painful to receive. But understand that that pain is God chiseling out, carving out the parts of us that, that if left unchecked could lead to death, destruction, destruction the ruining of our relationships, of our families, the squandering of our blessings. Listen, the word of God is a scaffold that cuts out the cancer of sin. And listen, you can rest assured that God's discipline in your life through his word is always done in love. Always done in love. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 67 says, for the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons for what son is there whom his father does not discipline? Listen, the conviction you feel, the rebuke you experience, the discipline you encounter as you seek God in his word is evidence of your position as a child of God. Do not run from it, embrace it, welcome it, count it a blessing that God is disciplining you. Listen, I'd be worried if he wasn't, right? If in your sin God hasn't been correcting you, drawing you back to Himself, disciplining you, edifying you, refining you through His Word, I'd be extremely worried. So here's the application for this: Are you coming to God for life, or are you turning to the things of this world? Are you turning to the world because it affirms you in your in your sin, in your thinking, in your behaviors, and your perspectives? Or are you turning to Christ through through the Word of God, regardless if, if what His Word says is regardless of what His Word says is contrary to what you believe, feel, or think? Are you turning to the Word of God to be corrected? To find real life and satisfaction, to be edified by it? Welcome the correction that the word of God brings. Come to God for life and not the world. Let's go back to our passage in verse 41. I do not receive glory from people, Jesus says, right? Jesus is saying that he doesn't receive his praise or his honor or his recognition from man, from humanity. That's not what he's living for. Remember that. He's gonna, we're going to come back to that. Jesus then says in verse 42, But I know that you do not have the love of God within you. I have come in my Father's name and you do not receive me. We talked about this in the previous sermon in verse 43. The word receive in the original Greek has to do with with attaining something. But when used in the context of a person in a relationship, it's similar to how a husband receives his wife or a wife accepts her husband. All of that to say, it's being, what's being said here is, is, is the language of love. Christ is saying that he knows that the love of God is not in the religious leaders because they did not love him. They did not receive him. Then we come to another pitfall of the Pharisees here in, in the same verse, verse 43. If another comes in his own name, you will receive him. Jesus is calling out the Pharisees on the fact that if anyone else would have come claiming to be the Messiah, they would have received, they would have loved him. This was a historical fact, by the way. The Jewish historian Josephus wrote about how before and after Christ, many came claiming to be the Messiah. And just as many of them came, many followed after them, especially these religious leaders, these Pharisees. Now, mind you, none of these false messiahs ever did anything close to what Jesus accomplished in his earthly ministry. They were mostly insurrectionists rallying the people against Rome. And Jesus tells the Pharisees, these false messiahs came with no evidence, no proof of them being the messiah, no expert witnesses to validate their claims, yet they received them. They loved them. What's wrong with that picture, right? Here was Jesus healing the sick, turning water into wine, casting out demons, providing evidence of the legitimacy of his claims as a son of God, he even brings these expert witnesses as per the law that valid as per the law to validate his claims, but still, the Pharisees refuse to receive him. Meanwhile, here's these no-name influencers who just talk about kicking Rome out of the country, and the religious leaders accept them with no questions asked. Now, as ridiculous as that might sound, the reality is we do the same thing today. We are more likely to receive, accept, and love the opinion, the truths, the word of the world over the truths of God's word. Why? Because it's science, maybe? Because it's tangible? Because it doesn't require faith? Because it sounds and feels right? Because it doesn't rock the boat? Because it's the popular opinion? And because it's what we want to hear? The reality is we are easily swayed towards the truth of the world when it's the truth that we are wanting to hear. Second Timothy chapter 4, verse 3 to 4 says, For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but have itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions, and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. Listen, there are a lot of Christians out there with itching ears, accumulating for themselves, teachers that fit their passions, teachers that, 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 that line up with their profiles, people that agree with their truths. And as a result, truth becomes relative, truth becomes your truth, and what's black and white according to God's word becomes gray. And again, it does not make any sense. Why take the word of a, of a fallible man, someone who makes mistakes, someone who has the potential to be wrong and who can be deceptive. Why are we so quick to take the word of the world who has time and time again proven that it is filled with lies and deception and cannot completely be trusted over the infallible, inerrant word of God, the Bible, that which has been tested time and time again and has been proven to be true. Here's the call. Trust the word for truth and not the world. Trust the word for truth and not the world. We have talked in the past about the inerrancy and the infallibility of scripture from this pulpit. Inerrancy meaning that the Bible does not affirm or contain any errors. The Bible does not endorse anything untrue. When it tells history, it tells us what actually happened it may contain a lie that a person once said but it does not endorse that lie it merely states it as a fact this is what the this is what the person said even when it speaks on things of science it does not contradict god's revelation in the natural world so sorry if you believe in a flat earth the bible does not support your claims in summary the bible is entirely truthful And has no errors at all in the original manuscripts and and, and from what the the prophets and the apostles wrote. The Bible is inerrant, it contains no errors. Secondly, we affirm that the Bible is infallible, meaning that it is incapable of ever being wrong. It does not matter if you read it today or a hundred years from now, regardless of what new revelations, what, what, new, what new things that science has discovered or philosophy or education or society, the Bible is written in a way that it can never be wrong. When God inspired the authors of scripture, he made it so that it was impossible for them to produce any error in the completed work, not just in the, in the finished work, right? You can think of it this way. Inerrancy deals with content, meaning it's without error. Infallibility deals with potential, meaning it cannot, ever be, it cannot ever be wrong. Now the Bible has these characteristics because we believe that the Bible is God-breathed. The very words of God. It's not merely inspired by God and written, by, by, written down by man, but they are actually the words of God himself. 2 Timothy chapter 3:16 says this, all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. That's all of scripture, both old and new testament, both the red letters and the black letters. And because they are the very words of God, and because God cannot lie, He is the truth, the standard of what is truth, we can therefore conclude that the Bible is true and trustworthy. Now, we can go on at lengths in which, you know, providing evidence of, of, of this, of how both internally and externally the Bible supports these claims of it being true, but all we need to ask, really, in order to determine whose word is more truthful... God's or man's, simply ask, has man ever been wrong? Has man ever been wrong? Answer this for me. Yes or no? Everybody should be saying yes, right? Has man ever produced anything fallible? Meaning capable of being wrong? Has man ever made a mistake, slipped up on the truth? Has man ever been deceptive? Wives, hopefully you're not looking at your husband at this point, right? Better question, right? And you can relate this back to yourself. Have you ever told a lie? Have you ever believed in something that was untrue? Have you ever been wrong about something? If so, if you know in yourself you are capable of being wrong... What makes you think that these influencers, these philosophers, these teachers, these scientists, these politicians, these celebrities, what makes you think that their word is more truthful than the very word of God himself? These people whose opinions you hold in such high regard, whose theories you live by, whose words shape your thinking, why do you believe that their word is more trustworthy than the word of God? I think what it boils down to is whether or not you truly believe that the Bible is the Word of God. Because if it is, because if you believe that, there ought not to be any doubt in your mind which one is more true. There, ought to, there, there shouldn't be any other word or any other philosophy or any other teaching that should direct your life, that should shape your thoughts. Again, sola scriptura is what we live by in this church. Scripture alone is our highest authority when it comes to faith and practice and life itself. Everything else is measured by the word of God, not any other word, not the word of the world. And listen, if that is a hard truth to swallow, let me tell you, you're in the same boat as these Pharisees. These Pharisees who studied the word of God all their life but never believed it because they preferred the words of man, the preferences, the opinions of man over the word of God. And as Jesus asked, if you do not believe these things, the, 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 this thing that Moses wrote down, how will you believe my words? If you do not by faith trust that the word of God is true on the matters of morality of life and practice, How can you ever believe the claims that Jesus died for your sins, that he rose from the grave, that he's gone to go prepare a place for you, and that he's coming again soon? If you do not trust the word of God for the simple truths of life, how much more the grand revelations of Christ's divinity? divinity. I challenge you, believer. Search what what is it that you truly believe in. Whose word do you hold in high regard? Is it the word of fallible men, men who can be wrong, or the very words of God? Trust the word for truth and not the world. Now let's go back to our passage and see the last thing that Jesus calls these Pharisees out on. Anyone getting hit with these things? I feel like sometimes I feel like I'm getting hit too. Verse forty-four. How can you believe when you receive glory from one another and do not seek the glory that comes from the only God? Jesus gets to the heart of why these religious leaders did not believe the word of God. It was because they longed more for their own glory rather than the glory of God. If you remember, Jesus spoke on, on glory before. In the same passage, in verse 41, Jesus said, I do not receive glory from people. He's talking about praise and recognition. Jesus wasn't after man's praise, but the Pharisees were. Remember, these were the guys who, who prayed out in the market square so that people could hear their elaborate, and, their elaborate and long prayers. These were the guys that Jesus called the whitewashed tombs, guys who were, uh, who were all about the externals, but dead internally. Later in the Gospel of John, John records how, in John chapter 12, verse 42, he says, Nevertheless, many, even of the authorities, believed in Jesus. But for fear of the Pharisees, they did not confess it, so that they would not, put, so that they would not be put out of the synagogue. For they loved the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. Same thing in chapter 5. Jesus points out their motivation for why they did things, why they believed a certain way, the approval and praise of man. And unfortunately, in a world where everyone is a Pharisee, where everyone on social media is is clout chasing, virtue signaling, flexing, putting up posts of their best life, making their opinions heard, it's easy as believers to get caught up in the pressure of wanting to be or have the same thing, to be accepted by that popular world, the popular view of things. It's easy as believers to fold to the pressures of all those screaming and, throw, and those who are screaming and throwing a tantrum, wanting to be affirmed in their sin. And it's just as easy to affirm them in the guise of being loving and gracious but that's not loving it's enabling and it's not being gracious that's just withholding and denying the truth and all for the sake of what being accepted being perceived in a certain light so that you won't offend people being received by the world. As Jesus says in our passage, to receive glory from one another. That's often why believers cave into the pressures, into the lies of this world. Here's a call and, uh, as we close this morning. Desire the praise of God and not the world. Desire the praise of God and not the world. It's not the praise of man. Jesus said in Matthew chapter 10, verse 26, So have no fear of them, for nothing is covered that will not be revealed, or hidden that will not be known. Talking to his disciples. What I tell you in the dark, say in the light, and what you hear whispered, proclaim on the housetops. And do not fear those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Listen, beloved, in this life you only have one audience that matters. You only have one audience that matters. Only one whose praise and honor you should be seeking. Only one whose affection and approval you should be pursuing. And it's not some politician or a coworker or a family member. It's certainly not some social media influencer. The only approval you ought to be looking for And the one that actually matters in this life and that has eternal ramifications is what God has to say about you. It's God's approval. It's your standing before God. And listen, your works, right? How you appear, how you present yourself, what you say, what you do, all of that, all the externals does not influence your standing before a holy God. How... How holy can you be compared to Jesus Christ? Right? Romans chapter 3 verse 20 says, For by works of the law no human being will be justified. Justified means being approved, having right standing before God. The only way for us to be justified, to be accepted, to receive the praise of God the Father is by Christ's righteousness on us. By the forgiveness, by atoning blood of Jesus Christ upon us. It's why at the end of the day when we come face to face with our Savior, when we come face to face with our Master, He can say to us, well done my good and faithful servant. Because it's Christ's blood, it's Christ's righteousness upon us. It's Christ's faithfulness upon us on us that brings us through and carries us to the other side that is being recognized it is only by the righteousness of Christ but again you can only come to these conclusions if you believe the word of god church we cannot we cannot have any other opinion, any other word, any other philosophy, any other ideology as the highest authority of our lives, especially if we call ourselves Christians. Everything rises and falls on the word of God. At least it ought to be. Come to God for life and not the world. Find your hope, your satisfaction, life itself in the holy word of God where we find Christ. Christ. Trust the word for truth and not the world. What is your standard of truth? What do you measure what is true or false by? Is it your own opinions, your own preferences, what others have told you, what the world says to you? Or is it the word of God? Desire the praise of God and not the world. Again, church, we only have one audience in this life, and it's God himself. And the only thing that justifies us before the eyes of God is what we do with his son, Jesus Christ. If We put our faith in him, in his finished work, in his death and resurrection, declaring that that is enough. Ask yourself, whose word do you regard the most? Whose word has the highest authority over your life? In, in all the voices that you hear, in all the opinions that, you, that filter through your mind, who has the, 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 the loudest voice in your life? If it's, not, if it's not the word of God, the words of Christ, and not just, just, not just the gospels, right? Not just the New Testament, but also the Old Testament, the entirety, the full council of scripture... In church, I would suggest that there's a lot of work to be done. That things need to be changed. We ought to come to a place where the only thing that we can turn to in this life, even if everything is taken away, our reputation, our possessions, our friendships, our family, that we can continue to stand on the word of God, that we can continue to cling on to the word of God. I was reading this past week a little further down in the Gospel of John and in Peter's confession when, when, all the, when, when Jesus says to his disciples that you have to eat of my flesh and drink of my blood and, and this, was, this was a no-no, this was a taboo to the Jewish community that he was talking to and many of his disciples walked away. And Jesus asked his disciples, the 12, he asked the 12, will you walk away too? And I love Peter's confession and I believe it ought to be our confession as well this morning. As we, and even as we go from this place and as we, wherever we go in our walk with Christ. Peter says in John chapter 6, he says, Lord, to whom shall we go to? You have the words of eternal life and we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. I I love this confession by Peter because he's recognizing that there's no one else that they can turn to. No one else has the words of life. Who else should we go to? And church, that is a question that you need to answer for yourself this morning as we close. Who else do you turn to? Who else do you go to? Where else can you find the words of eternal life? If Jesus is the answer to that, then hold his word as the highest authority over your life. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we confess that our hearts are not always like Peter's heart, recognizing that you're the only place that we can go to for life and satisfaction. We confess, O oh Lord, that there are many times, O oh Lord, that we turn a deaf ear to your word, to your spirit, and listen instead to the, to the words of others, to the, the, to the opinions of the world. We confess, O oh Lord, that if, your word is not always the highest authority over our life sometimes our flesh takes precedence that sometimes our our, the opinions of others take its place that Lord that sometimes we 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 even run from your word because it brings out it draws out the sin in us Father, God, I pray that you move all our hearts this morning to repentance. That God, you would move all our hearts to desire and long to put your word first over the words of man, over the words of the world, even the words of our own flesh. I pray, O oh God, that we would trust your word first that we would hear your word first, that it would be your word, oh God, that we turn to first before anything else. And I pray, oh God, that if there has been any lies that we have believed, any deception that we have clinged on to, that we have put our hope and faith into, that is not from you, God the power of your spirit this morning that those strongholds, that those lies would just fall they would just crumble before your truth and that God you would pour upon your people a fresh revelation of your truth a fresh passion for your word fresh hope and trust and who you say you are in your word that we would trust again that we would hope again even when it's hard even when it exposes our sin even when it exposes our weaknesses oh God that we would run to you and not flee that we would invite correction and edification that we invite your discipline as a loving father so heal your people this morning, oh God, heal our minds, correct our hearts, renew our trust in you, return to us the joy of your salvation, God, that is only proclaimed in the holy word of God, the Bible. Help us, O oh Lord. Help our unbelief, we pray. In Jesus' Your mighty name. Thanks for listening. We hope that you were blessed by the sermon today. If you would like to learn about the gospel or know more about our church, please visit pluslifepeople.com. Remember to subscribe for more content. Until next time, stay blessed.